I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of Responsible Investment at Band Group. You're listening to A Sustainable Future, a podcast about what we're doing today to build a more sustainable world tomorrow. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. One of the defining features of the pandemic, not to mention the surrounding debate around inequality, is about work. What will work look like in a post-pandemic world? Will certain jobs even exist? Which jobs and which sectors get saved? And what are the implications for labor rights? Now, clearly, national responses have been enormous. Europe has suspended state aid and fiscal rules, and we've seen tremendous amounts of unprecedented stimulus injected into the economy. But unemployment benefits will ultimately expire. In the U.S., for instance, they'll expire at the end of this month, July, just as the coronavirus caseload there passes 3 million. These are questions that cut across both the formal sector, where 300 million jobs are at risk, and the informal economy, which accounts for 60% of the global workforce. Now, on a personal note, this episode strikes a particular chord for me. I'm from Unionstock. Both sides of my family were local United Auto Worker members in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. And the stories they tell, they're fascinating, but they're never simple. Yes, they're about pride in work and workers' rights, but they're also fraught with tension about walkouts, strike breakers, and living lean through prolonged strikes. So this episode is a powerful reminder for me not only why unions are a force for good, but how they're advancing the larger discussion around labor rights for all workers, regardless of their union status. All of this is to say that it's a privilege to have my next guest, Sharon Burrow, on the show. We discuss what makes her optimistic about the labor rights movement, but less positive about underlying labor markets. We talk about how trade unions are positioning themselves for a potential reallocation shock, why the erosion in the ITUC's Global Rights Index warrants a new social contract, and many, many other topics. Sharon is General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation, or ITUC. She served as inaugural president of the ITUC from its foundation in Vienna in 2006 and was re-elected in 2018. As president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions from 2000 to 2010, Sharon led Union Negotiations on Major Economic Reforms and in Labor Rights Campaigns. It's worth noting that Sharon studied first as a teacher, began working for the New South Wales Teachers Federation, then moving to the Australian Education Union. The ITUC itself is a confederation of national trade union centers, each of which links trade unions of that particular country. It represents more than 207 million workers throughout its 331 affiliated organizations within 163 countries and territories. Its primary mission is the promotion and defense of workers' rights and interests through international cooperation between trade unions, global campaigning, and advocacy within the major global institutions. Welcome to the podcast, Sharon. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for your time. It's nice to be with you. Perfect. Look, before we begin on these questions, I think it's, it's maybe it's worth describing what the ITUC is exactly for people that aren't familiar on this podcast. And I'm also really curious too about your own arc and the fact that you and Fiona Reynolds at the United Nations Principles for Responsible Investment both come from an Australian union's background and now lead at the international level. And sort of as a second question, I'm wondering given I know the rich history of, of Australian unions that sort of goes back to the 19th century. But I'm wondering what it says about the activism and solidarity of Australian trade unions and their influence. So the International Trade Union Confederation is actually the global body of trade unions. If you think that I was president of the Australian Council of Trade Unions, then those national institutions around the world are members of ours. We, in fact, uh, cover most countries in the world. We have more than 200 million activist members and we stand for workers everywhere, whether they're members or not. So right now the labour market is around 3 billion people or so. The tragedy is that 60% of those workers are working informally without uh, rights or minimum wages or social protection, no rule of law. And of course, it's undermining 
and economic stability and a shared prosperity is creeping into our developed countries as well. So we'll probably come back to those questions, Mm -hmm. but uh, that gives you a picture of our work. In terms of Fiona, well, what a leader, and (laughs) I'm very proud she's from Australia. But uh, the history of the trade unions in Australia and the industry super funds is actually joined at the hip. We looked at some of the risks ourselves in the 70s and 80s, and we could see that while the public sector was very well organised and had, uh, you know, superannuational pension uh, benefits that had been negotiated, the majority of Australians did not. So it actually mirrors the fact that 70% of global uh, workers have no social protection, and that means no pensions as well as other benefits. And in Australia, it was uh, a third of the workforce or so, uh, forgive me on the figures, but uh, that were well protected into retirement. But the bulk of them were not, and most of them were low-paid women So where the union movement was organised in the private and the public sector, yes, we covered the field, but even in the private sector where workers were organised, particularly low-paid workers, there wasn't a guarantee of of a dignity in retirement. So the unions actually uh, um, went out and negotiated, first of all, uh, with, uh, you know, uh, a clear target, the, uh, the kind of superannuation entitlements. And we built the funds with employers because they're joint trustee. So in a sense, you know, some of the, you know, giants of the labour movement were also giants of the beginnings of superannuation or pension funds in Australia. And Fiona, of course, was part of that uh, stable. So she took over from a giant in our movement, Mavis Robertson. And uh, and then the rest is as it is today. So, yes, Fiona and I know each other very well. We've worked together for, you know, a number of years and uh, there's no doubt I am, as I said, really proud of her work. She's leading sustainability and the argument around sustainability, around uh, rights and, uh, you know, decent work and the kind of leverage that uh, investors can have on shifting the economy uh, I would say like no other. Yeah. She's, she's done a past podcast. So it's, it's just, I'm incredibly proud to have both of you on. So, so thank you. Let, let's start out trying to find some bearing in the midst of, of this pandemic, you know, the, this pandemic and the black lives matter inequality issues as well have brought out social issues in a way that we haven't really seen before. It's provoked unprecedented levels of government stimulus programs, given the, uh, the, the high uh, unemployment um, within this, you've talked in the past about how the pandemic is exposing fault lines. Can you talk to where these rifts are and how the pandemic exactly is amplifying them? So the fault lines were seen in silos prior to COVID-19. And now we can see a convergence of crisis. It's exploded the tensions and the despair and anger that already existed. If you actually consider that uh, inequality was at massive levels, that the historic divide in terms of the distribution of shared uh, prosperity was way out of whack. You know, the popular story or pictorial was the 1%, but it was accurate. And as there was uh, more and more attacks with austerity on fundamental rights and security, so job security, the right to bargain collectively, to be free to associate without, uh, um, you know, interference and to basically collectivise power, then with those attacks came a destitution or a fear of destitution. It was already driving anger and despair in many, many countries. And you saw people on the streets, you know, from Chile and Brazil through to, uh, you know, Indonesia and the Philippines to uh Brazil and many other countries around the world. But that inequality has many faces. It is income inequality. And, of course, if people are more secure, and that means a secure job, a secure income, you know, decent wages on which people can live with dignity and the guarantees of access to health and education and those uh, elements of care, as well as a dignified retirement income, 
then they feel more confident about the world for themselves and their children. That's broken down for the overwhelming majority of people around the world, and we'll come back to that. But add to that the, uh, the, the depiction of racial injustice, systemic injustice, has been with us for decades, whether it's the higher rates of incarceration of Indigenous people in my own country, Australia, or whether it's, uh, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, or whether it's the leftover, um, you know, injustices of colonialisation. You know, there are still wars around not just land, but around uh, the divisions amongst people who feel excluded from their societies. And the amount of conflicts in that regard is growing. So no one was surprised when Black Lives Matter erupted again. I think um, the explanation I heard that makes a lot of sense is that those of us who understand uh, a little of the tensions in the world had not realised that while we would be enraged with the actual now use of uh, technology, that the world was enraged. And so it's brought a consciousness and a shame to the world about why we would treat other human beings as less than those of us who were born, you know, with a white uh, visage, as they say. But um, nevertheless, we need to understand how to fix that systemic discrimination. And it's not that different for women. Progress for women is stalled by every indicator. And so when you look at the inequalities, we say they are income, they are racial or ethnic or other divides in our society, and they are gender based. That, of course, would be difficult in and of itself if it wasn't also part and parcel of a crisis that's the climate emergency, which is about the extinction of the human race. So when we talk about, you know, recovery and building resilience, you have to join those two. So we say the world we build must be very different. It must be socially and economically just and it must actually have people and planet aligned with economy. How do you think COVID-19, this pandemic, is changing, I guess, the tenor of the labor rights debate right now? And specifically, how do you think it's resetting expectations behind the movement, not just at the local, national and sectoral level, but also at the global level? Well, because COVID-19 has exposed a range of these, uh, you know, fault lines in stark detail, then I think people's eyes have opened up. If you've got the economy collapsing around you because non-essential supply chains are actually, uh, you know, tragically in uh, in a, an environment where we don't know how much of them are coming back. If you see, like we did in the 2008-2009 crisis, that the banks have little or no uh, liquidity reserves and transfer that to major companies, I'm talking about global world beaters, who don't have three months of operating reserves that would stretch to uh, paying for orders already lodged or giving people confidence in the supply chains that they will, there will be further orders, then it tells you the fragility of the model of just-in-time economy that we've built. If you add to that people's horror that when the borders were closed and the demand for medical products, uh, PPE or protective equipment was actually uh, escalated, that countries themselves couldn't actually provide this. You know, we have, uh, I have a French friend who says, for all the world-beating companies in France, we couldn't find any companies that could pivot quickly to making the necessary product. I think you heard Justin Trudeau who said we will bring the essential supply chains home to Canada. So there's huge debate and horror and shock in the business community as well. So we've been working very closely with those in the business community who know that the world has to change. There already was a kernel of investors and um, and uh, businesses that had accepted that the world needed to change, that we needed to see human and labour rights as fundamental, that we needed a fair competition floor against the monopolies of the big tech companies, that we needed 
to sign up to Just Transition and Net Zero. And much of the capital world had actually done that. If you look at uh, pension funds, then they'd certainly signed all those statements. The reality is now they have to work out what's sustainable and how to rebuild in their own interest, but also in the interests of, uh, of a world that works for people. And of course, it caught, this caught us at a time when multilateralism was already in crisis. But again, people didn't really want to recognize that or where they did. They wanted to tinker at the edges or just, you know, run, uh, the kind of, um, you know, PR, um, plans that convince people they should trust globalization at a moment when it was just, you know, breaking down rapidly. And now people have to face the questions of why. They're very big questions. Why? Now, we can answer some of those. You know, if you think that hyper-globalization started to really break down the social contract in the 1980s and from you know, that period through to today, if you look at the labour income share, it's like just this, you know, giant curve on the, on the downward slope and uh, you wouldn't want to ski on it. It's so steep. So, you know, that has not just social implications that have led to that despair and anger, but it's actually got economic implications in terms of fundamental demand at a domestic or a global level. So we already were in trouble. But this has just added this giant health, yes, again, exposed the underfunding of our public services. It's a health crisis and it will continue to be a health crisis and we're going to have to coexist with that even as we build recovery and resilience. But the scale of it, and that's why we demand a new social contract, is not only unbelievable but it requires if we're going to see recovery, if we're going to build resilience against further global shocks, it requires us to rethink financing for the recovery, but the way in which we look at financing on a much more patient basis. I want to come back to this idea of the social contract and and the social dialogue even a little bit later, but I want to stick on one thing that you mentioned, which is this sort of horror and shock and specifically shock, because what you're finding now is this, you know, this idea that there will be an allocation or reallocation shock um, in a post-pandemic world. And I'm wondering, how do, how do unions get their heads around this? How do they think about it? How do they position themselves? How do they capacity plan for this idea of a reallocation shock when, you know, the, the, the likelihood that employers in a post-pandemic world won't necessarily rehire the same amount of workers or that specific skill set. So what might end up happening is a wave of workers forced either to retrain or relocate. So those risks are enormous. The ILO statistics, you don't have to look to ours, are some 300 million jobs in the formal sector are at risk. And we're seeing unemployment queues in developed economies, particularly outside of Europe, that are probably greater than the 1930s and the depression of the 1930s. But the untold story for many, many people is the informal economy, 60% of the global workforce and growing because it isn't just uh, the economy of the developing world anymore. It's all those uh, businesses that don't have a social license to operate in the traditional sense in our societies as well. So the breakdown in secure employment, if you like, that unions have been warning about, but platform business, internet mediated businesses across now a convergence of groups from freelancers to professions like journalism, which was once a very secure job to you know, um, entertainment, to trades persons, even to care. So those jobs are at the moment not subject to a formal employment relationship and therefore not the rule of law. That was already a debate and the ILO dealt with some of that in terms of the future of work in their centenary declaration last year. But it's now a massive explosion. Why? Because... The exposure shows that 1.6 billion of the 2 billion people or so working informally actually are facing destitution. And we even saw that in the kind of emergency measures where 
unions made advances on the social contract in terms of paid sick leave, wage guarantees, income support more broadly for those uh, workers not covered by direct uh, employment and, of course, access to health. But the people even in my own country that were excluded were the entertainers, the arts community, for example, amongst others. And you can show that picture worldwide because they're not recognised in that formal economic sense. So it certainly has exposed the major fault lines in in uh, employment and income security. The question is, will there be reallocation? That is, in fact, what we call a just transition, where people sit talk about how to maintain an economic base and an employment security, what the redeployment and retraining and income support in that period looks like. And there are very few countries geared up to make that possible right now. The, some of the Nordic countries are. You know, Germany has a history they put in place in the last uh, crisis of what happens if you reduce working hours, how do you maximise wages, what's the responsibility between government employers, and that's negotiated, of course, with the social partners. But too many countries, too many countries are without any of these safety nets, and that's a disaster. We're fighting right now for a global social protection fund for the poorest of countries. If you think they have no social protection, then how do you actually build any kind of security you know, just human kind of compassion around health and income support without a global fund to kickstart social protection in those countries. And we know that it actually supports a basic economy and it can be, you know, it's sustainable within um, a, a, a small number of years. But it would take for the poorest countries just around $35, $36 billion a year for five years in what is a global $10 trillion spend right now in terms of the emergency or the crisis phase, and we'll probably double that by the time we get to some ray of hope of recovery. So that's the kind of struggle that we're having around those issues, and it crosses that broad spectrum of how do you maintain formal employment, redeployment, reskilling, to be some to be really honest, they're the easier end of the curve. Mm. It's not easy in countries where you don't have governments and employers and workers in genuine social dialogue, but it's possible. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating. In the midst of all of those questions, I'm also wondering how the scope of unions, whether intentionally or even unintentionally, is sort of changing through this pandemic. And I guess what I mean is there's a natural assumption that unions will advocate and protect uh, unionized workers. And yet what we're starting to see, at least what I'm starting to read about, is some evidence, and I'm not quite sure how broad it is yet, but of union confederations actually fighting on behalf of all workers and not just unionized workers through this crisis. Um, I've read about examples in, in Philadelphia where unions have organized a pandemic relief fund to benefit all low-wage workers, regardless of union status. In Florida, I've heard about a coalition of labor groups calling on the state to overhaul its unemployment insurance system, which is which is which is a really interesting, uh, I think, manifestation out of this. How, how do you think about this? Well, we've always fought for a social justice mandate. Yes, being a member of a union gives you some basic security because collective power is always. Um, more influential than, uh, you know, individual kind of, um, you know, kind of tra uh, trauma. But if you think, you know, in Australia, for example, the tra trade unions have always put around six months of resources into the, the minimum wage for the poorest of Australians because we've always believed no one should fall through the cracks. In um, the US at the moment, not only those issues you picked out, but in fact, many people are uh, um, organising uh, food kitchens because believe it or not, it's not just those 1.6 billion uh, informal workers, but people who are suddenly without jobs, jobs that already didn't pay enough in countries like the US, so they were working two and three jobs and now struggling just to survive and, and for their families to survive. If you look at the fact that the European Union 
with uh, um, union demands are looking at a, um, a minimum wage guarantee, one that is a living wage across all of the European countries. It will be different in different countries, but that it actually has some benchmarks that countries would have to report about and the social partners should be involved and that where possible it should be set by collective bargaining. These are for everybody. Now, our job is to organise workers and uh, that's always been a challenge, but it's always been the case that we stand up for issues of social justice more broadly. Indeed, last year at the ILO, the future of work and the uh, realities of the labour market and other externalities were considered very deeply. And the consensus was that we had to put a labour protection floor under all workers, irrespective of the employment relationship. So that would mean fundamental rights, the right to uh, freely associate, to collectively bargain and organise, to be free of discrimination or child or forced labour. It would mean occupational health and safety guarantees. And it would, in fact, mean an adequate minimum wage or or an evidence-based minimum wage on which workers and their families could live with dignity and maximum hours of work. But it would be married with universal social protection. So, you know, fundamental public services like health and and, uh, education and, uh, you know, uh, pensions and disability and, you know, um, and security in terms of uh, unemployment benefits and the like. But it would have other areas, a transformative agenda for women, reinvestment in care more broadly to support women's participation in jobs, but also in the labour market, um, uh, you know, on a broader scope. And it would have just transitions for both climate and uh, and uh, technology. So there are many other elements, but that gives you the understanding that when workers negotiate, they do negotiate with all workers in mind, even uh, in collective agreements. You know, we don't exclude people in the workplace who are not union members. You mentioned collective bargaining rights, and I think it's it's probably worth mentioning the, or, or at least highlighting the ITUC's Global Rights Index, which I, I found absolutely fascinating. And I'm wondering, as you continually update this through the pandemic, what kind of commonality uh, you see sort of evolving or, or rather devolving across countries? So when I told you that the global labour market was in trouble and uh, that's a direct response from some of those attacks on fundamental human and labour rights, if you can't freely associate, if you can't organise, if you can't bargain collectively, and in order to do that where work is either, um, you know, unfair in that context or indeed it's unsafe, if you can't exercise the right to strike, then you're effectively heading towards a, a system where, you know, it's authoritarian if not enslaved. If workers can't strike in unsafe or, you know, un, uh, or dehumanising conditions, then what does it say about our world and the dominance of capital at any cost? Then when you add the growth in authoritarian governments, we're seeing right now, yesterday, we dealt with two uh, uh, realities, the Hong Kong um, national security law. It's aimed at those people struggling for democracy and rights. If you look at the Philippines, anti-terror laws, They're aimed at those people struggling for democracy and rights. And, of course, our members are in the forefront of all of those movements, whether it's environmental, whether it's rights-based, or whether it's simply workplace uh, um, fairness. You know, I've walked the supply chains, and I can tell you that was our fight long before COVID-19. And they are simply dehumanising exploitation in too many areas, which is why... We fight for due diligence, mandated due diligence. We don't expect any company to be perfect. We don't expect any investor to be absolutely able to, you know, dot the I's and and cross the T's. What we do expect is that they will do the due diligence, that if they work with us, they're much more likely to have uh, uh, a capacity to identify the violations or the risk of violations. They put in place 
the grievance procedures, the rule of law on an informal basis that can actually uh, remedy those grievances. And then, you know, we'll help them to monitor the health of supply chains. But first of all, you have to accept it. And uh, many, many companies do. And I'm proud to say there are unions that are uh, working with companies who are seeing their actual mandate as broader than just shareholder activism because they know that's not sustainable in the long run, even if, and it's not moral. And, but we need our investors to do the same. They've got huge leverage. So simply asking companies what their due diligence process is, do they have grievance procedures in place? What happens when there's a violation of uh, rights or environmental standards? That would go a long way to shifting the base of our society. Unless we do, then we're in for a terrible, terrible divide around the world. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point. It's, it's really problematic though. And I say that because it's been, this is the trade-offs we're making right now, um, across a whole number of areas are, are, uh, I think a lot of people are trying to wrap their heads around them. And it's been an area that I've, you know, I've spoken to with, with Mary Robinson last month or, or Dr. Amesh Adolja at the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security before that. And, and, I'm not finding a lot of answers, but there clearly is a recognition that there are short-term trade-offs versus long-term costs. I, you know, uh, the, the uh, self-isolation in during self-isolation, you know, the idea that we can um, uh, use uh, big online commerce giants like Amazon would seem to be a good thing in terms of sort of reinforcing social distancing. And yet we've got to recognize the long-term employment trade-offs, particularly at the local level, that that, that might displace um, uh, surveillance, for instance. You know, th- there clearly is an urgency around contract tracing, but what does that mean in terms of uh, privacy privacy rights in the long term? How do you kind of think about this this balance? It's not the orthodoxy of where you work or even how you work. It's what the prevailing conditions and the rights and the rule of law are that frame that work. So, of course, direct employment is the most secure. Full-time employment is the most secure or permanent part-time employment, which, of course, for periods of workers' lives, whether it's study or travel or, um, you know, of course, uh, child-raising uh, responsibilities is, uh, is uh, a choice. But it has to be, indeed, a secure form of work. Now, as we put security under other forms of work, then we can make those jobs good, decent, rights-based jobs. But the question is, will societies choose that or will we continue to see a corporate lobby that actually says we want to treat workers in the way Amazon does, for example? And, you know, the numbers of ambulance calls, the uh, horrific stories of workers dying and... uh, you know, people putting, uh, you know, road signs virtually around them, the witches' hats and then work going on, are not um, fantasies. They're real. Sacking workers for striking around environment in places like Google and so on, not fantasy, they're real. And so on it goes. But the big threat to um, all of our futures is what will it take to get regulation around surveillance protection and privacy? And what will it take to create a fair competition for all businesses? Because monopoly has always been seen as uh, dangerous for everybody. And yet uh, here you have private monopolies. Remember when public monopolies provided services and people attacked them, you know, the private sector attacked them as being unfair. Well, now you have public sector, well, at least oligopsonies, if not monopoly, but it's the same monopoly power. And yet our campaign for breaking up Amazon, for regulating big tech, is only being picked up in the EU. Ironically, the EU is the hope of the future because while the rest of the world is um, fighting against regulation on many fronts, the EU has promised to look at a minimum wage to look at the very tenor of security in terms of a social pillar of rights. Well, they already have a social pillar and they're looking at legislative arrangements. Digital uh, 
uh, rights and guarantees, a digital tax. The US pulled out of those negotiations last week, but uh, Commissioner Vestager is determined to continue to pursue this, as is the leadership, and uh, mandated due diligence, amongst other areas. So when you consider that their recovery package is based on uh, the social pillar, the Green Deal, and in fact, uh, just transitions, then that framing tells you that the EU is committed to putting in place both the regulatory and the funding base to actually build that future that we need, to change fundamentally um, the the way in which we look at a future that, that does something about those fault lines. But Europe is also not um, an island on its own. And so it has vast implications for what it means for global globalisation, for multilateralism. So unless we see changes in other countries, you know, it's you can predict any number of scenarios from this. But the reality is I grew up in a country where monopoly uh, power, in fact, it way less than monopoly power, you know, competition policy was a religion. And uh, often it kind of rubbed up against our capacity to, uh, you know, to support uh, genuine justice around strikes and around bargaining and so on. But now it's like the world's suddenly forgotten about competition policy. It It is being recognised in Europe, just as indeed what we call patient investment and patient capital is seeing a, uh, a breakthrough, along with a, a greater patience around debt because some of those recovery funds will learn from that they've learned from the lessons of eight nine the marriage of the bond markets and the ratings agency that killed struggling economies with debt that just escalated and they couldn't pay it back then this time there will be a window of you know it could be a decade it's not exactly long term but at least medium term so countries can get back on their feet can build capacity and then uh, um, pay back what what will be virtually low or no cost loans anyway. So we are seeing a shift, but there needs to be a much greater shift in the way we think about finances and the way we invest in the future. That was a great description of the essential ingredients of the new social contract or what it would look like. But I'm wondering also how you would address the intersectional sort of elements that we talked about earlier in terms of, of, of race, of, uh, of gender, what would a new social contract look like that, that, that cures some of those problems? I think you've, you've, I've heard you speak before and you've talked about how women make up 70% of the global health and social care workforce, which is incredible, or even 60% of the service sector. So, you have to start with how you build, first of all, security because it's much easier for far-right politicians or, you know, uh, ugly employers to actually drive a divide between workers and between, you know, communities based on all sorts of discriminatory uh, practice if there's insecurity. So if you return to a tenant of full employment and what does that look like in a world where there's not enough work it it may well be that we have to share work that we have to reduce working hours but how do you maximize income how do you guarantee social protection a minimum wage on which people can live with dignity and collective bargaining for shared profit and productivity or shared prosperity everywhere and then how do you make sure that those sectors of the economy, and they will be largely women and uh, migrant workers and people who have uh, struggled to get, uh, you know, justice, racial justice, how do you make sure not only are they included in full employment but that the wage justice elements of that are actually, uh, you know, kind of respected, put in place and respected? For women, we've always said, if you want to narrow the wage gap, then a minimum living wage and social protection will get you a long way towards it. A lot of the gender injustice, and it is unjust or unjust, um, actually uh, 
has to, has been looked at through the eyes of diversity on boards of uh, CEOs uh, in number and indeed of executive pay. But you know, from my perspective, let's do something about the base, and then it will drive lasting change. But on top of that, you have to look at not just equality of opportunity, although that's a good start, but equality of outcomes. You know, why is it that we have so few women or so few, uh, you know, um, people of colour or so few Indigenous people in our positions, whether it's in work, well-paid work or in leadership all around the world? And it's a systemic prejudice. There's no doubt about that. So we have to examine ourselves and say, you know, do we look at all people as human beings with equal rights and uh, and we demand equal treatment or don't we? And the answer is right now we do not. So when that's built in by either experience or by propaganda, then we have to look at the rule of law. And uh, it's always been the case. So, you know, these are hard discussions, but we can see from an economic justice point of view and a social justice around inclusion, how you fix the labour market, how we fix the, you know, the built-in fear of, uh, you know, propaganda and, and lack of experience of other people, I don't know. I've got the most privileged job in the world. Mm. You know, I can go into any country, most workplaces in the world, I can sit with families in their workplace, in their home, in their communities, and... You know, we don't see colour because our workers from all around the world are of different colour, different ethnicity, different religions. Indeed, all we fight is injustice. So we know that exists, but in our movement, we are deliberately determined to eradicate injustice in all its forms. And, of course, even on the question of migrants and refugees, then we've always said refugees are welcome. We say a worker is a worker is a worker no matter who they are, where they are, what workplaces they're in, and we will fight for them, their rights, and for equal treatment. I've got two more questions, but one is, it sounds simple, but let me explain. I guess the question is, what do do unions look like over the next 25 to 50 years? And I, I ask that because I come from a family, at least sort of my grandparents on both sides were United Auto Worker, you know, sort of unionists in the 40s, 50s, and 60s in the U.S. And it's interesting to kind of hear their conversations about it. It's also interesting to hear my father's reaction as a little boy living through sometimes tight times, you know, because of strikes. And 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 interestingly, his aversion out of that to to unions. But when I think back at that time, I think, I mean, there were specific issues. It was employment, it was pay, it was benefits, you know, those kinds of issues. Now, everything that we're talking about, the stakes are so much higher, whether it's it's climate change, whether it's the just transition, um, um, dealing with the implications of the pandemic. And I'm wondering how that changes what unions look like over the next several decades. And I'm also wondering how it actually changes the social dialogue, which I've always thought of as this, you know, tripartite mix of government employers and, and workers. But as you see some governments less willing to engage uh, in that dialogue, um, does it change the the tenor of the conversation and, and the role of unions? So unions are very diverse right now, and they'll continue to be even more diverse. In fact, we see massive opportunity opening up, as tragic as the world is. But let me just give you a description of the scope of unionism today, because you know, those, the strength of those American unions in industrial sectors, in the public sector, that's legendary. And it built the, as they call it, the middle classes in America on which the economy was founded. The difference in, Amer- in the American system is they didn't have a universal social protection base. You had to fight. You had to really fight for the 50 plus 1% that got you a union recognition in the first place in the American system. That's still true today. And then you had to fight to get a decent contract. So if you have a unionised job in America, you have a good job, you have good benefits, but they've all been paid for by and large from the 
the bargaining or deferred wages that workers fought for because there isn't that base there. It's shifted, by the way. When you look at the HEROES Act currently, you know, being opposed uh, by the Conservatives, it actually does a lot of that. It, it looks to advances in the social contract and how you maintain them. But it's been social movements led by the unions that have fought for things like the fight for 15, for a decent minimum wage. You know, in my country, in parts of Europe, that's either bargained or it's got a statutory base. In Australia, we take the minimum wage arguments based on living standards to the Commission every year. And so we've kept a very uh, serious level of the minimum wage, which has actually underpinned our economy because nobody can fall through the cracks unless they're working in an informal sector. And I'm sad to say even in my own country, that's uh, uh, way too high. So we need to look at that. But we also cover, you know, the... um, uh, the groups like the Europeans where social dialogue's much more, uh, you know, in their DNA and it isn't just with governments, it's also bilaterally with employers. In fact, a lot of the advances are cut with employers and then governments are happy to have, uh, you know, their recommendations where it involves government as well. On the big issues like just transition agreements and so on, then social dialogue plays a huge role. But we also organise in the informal economies. And so we have all manner of workers' groups who actually aren't covered by effectively the rule of law. And we also look with the global industrial structures to do global framework agreements with countries, sorry, with companies that have nothing to do with countries, but where the rule of law is deficit in many countries, often sadly by the uh, lobbying of, uh, of big capital then um, we see that uh, we can actually guarantee workers some rights and some, you know, basic uh, elements of a living wage and so on through those global framework agreements. And that's advancing in terms of the due diligence question. I was part of a group that Emmanuel Faber from Danone has set up and he's just shifted his whole legislative base to be a, a purpose-driven um, company, it's like the public benefit company in the US or in France. It's a, it's a mission of enterprise, uh, and so that uh, that shift isn't just about Emmanuel wanting to change his own company. He's built a business for inclusive growth group of companies, and they are working with us to work out how to do due diligence, how to put in place grievance, how to clean up and make transparent their business operations around the world with a purpose that's about people. So, you know, we are seeing some shifts, but it will take ultimately legislation and compliance, stiff compliance, to to help these companies get a fair competition floor, but to, from my perspective, eliminate the dehumanising exploitation that we now see. So over the next 20 years, we will expand that base we will try to put in place the labour protection floor for all workers, but we'll organise still on the ground, uh, online, you know, everywhere with social movements in partnership. So I'm quite optimistic about unions and the role of unions. I'm not as optimistic about the labour market, which, of course, is the base of security for everybody, for business, for trade unions, for governments. And we're all going to have to fight together for that. And investors have a huge role to see that whether it's the, you know, governance questions or the uh, environment questions or whether it's the social questions and human and labour rights, that they're there with a consciousness. And just to give you one other example, you know, I spoke to, a again, a very, very committed group of CEOs a few weeks ago around due diligence and with a target on forced labour. And until we described what it looks like in some supply chains, you know, they were very honest and they said, well, now we understand and that's not acceptable. Well, no, it isn't. But unless there is the transparency and the capacity to expose those uh, areas of exploitation, we won't shift the world at all. Got it. 
So I want to finish up with one last question, and it's because students make a pretty large part of the audience. Um, and I'm often asked about advice that I'd give them for those pursuing, you know, an interest in sustainability, either through finance, NGOs, policy, et cetera. And so I wanted to turn it around and ask what kind of guidance or advice you would pass on for, for students looking, you know, for, for an interest in labor rights, given the pressure that climate change and events like the pandemic pose, what's helped guide you through your life arc uh, and what would you pass on? So my first piece of advice to them would be absolutely uh, what you'd expect, join a union. (laughs) <laughs> but if you're not able to join a union for any set of reasons, then at least get advice from people because unions won't turn you away and build a collective voice inside whatever workplace, indeed inside academia, and student unions have done that forever. But if you're feeling excluded, then, you know, look to your fellow workers or fellow students and work out how you deal with a problem. And don't be frightened to ask for support and advice. There are people everywhere from, you know, legal aid uh, structures to volunteer groups to trade union leaders who will help. Am I worried about a future for our young people? Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, it's that question of inclusion. How do we fight? And I describe building a better world out of this because we don't want to business as usual. It's not acceptable. It's already got all those fault lines that cannot be carried in to the to the next uh, set of, uh, you know, kind of developments. And, and so as we build that better future, this will be a struggle of the generations. It's not just one generation. It's not just those workers in work. It's generations. So we need young people. We need older people. Because if we're not building the nature of our society and how you align people and planet with economy, then we're going to lose this one. Great. Well, that's a, that's a fantastic message to, to end on. So it's been fascinating to understand what the pandemic means for the labor rights debate, how the scope of unions is changing and expanding on behalf of all workers and why a new social contract must be forged to account for the erosion in labor rights in the global supply chains and informal work. So I'd really like to thank you for your time and views. I'm Jason Mitchell, co-head of responsible investment at Man Group here today with Sharon Burrow, General Secretary of the International Trade Union Confederation. Many thanks for joining us on A Sustainable Future, and I hope you'll join us on our next podcast episode. Thanks so much, Sharon. This is fantastic. Thank you. I'm Jason Mitchell. Thanks for joining us. Special thanks to our guests and, of course, everyone that helped produce this show. To check out more episodes of this podcast, please visit us at man.com forward slash ri dash podcast. Or look for us on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, and Podbean. And last, this podcast is an open educational resource. It's meant to be shared. And if you enjoy it, please take a second to review it on iTunes. I'm also really interested in your views, ideas, and opinions. So feel free to drop me a line at jason.mitchell at man.com.